You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everyone. How are y'all doing today? Good. Good. Y'all ready for the cold weather? Yeah. Yeah? It's coming. I think it's supposed to be like 48 degrees next week. It's going to be cold. Um, Yes, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you this morning to worship our God, to study his word, and to study it for all it's worth. I'm very glad to be here with you. So if you would, please grab your Bibles. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. I mean, not chapter 24. Luke chapter 11, <laughs> one day, one day, but Luke chapter 11, we're in verse 24, uh, and we're going to go to verse 28, so Luke 11, tw- uh, 24 to 28, please turn there with me, uh, but when, once you get there, hold your spot, we have something very important to do, does anybody know, besides, besides, besides Sam, all right, so the monthly family memory verse, if you're new with us, um, the monthly family member verse is something that we do as a church family every month. We, um, we have a new memory verse, which would count up to 12 new memory verses every year. Um, and so how we do this is as a church, we look at it and we memorize it throughout the week. We come together on Sundays and we start to recite this memory verse together from memory. Now it's blank right now because it's supposed to be recited from memory. Um, so that's what we're gonna do in a minute. And uh, if y'all are ready, That's what we're going to do. But before we do, I want to say why we do it. We memorize God's word so that, one, it can be hidden in our minds and in our hearts, that we can memorize God's word, that it would be always with us as a tool, as a sword, something to remind us of what God has done, and then also to spiritually grow us and strengthen us in our relationship with the Lord. We do that for, as a church, we desire that to be true of each one of you individually, of ourselves, but also as a church as a whole, we desire this to be true. Um, so is everybody ready to try and recite this from memory? First service did really good, so you got some pressure on you. But um, all right, so I'm gonna count us down. Let's, let's try it. Three, two, one. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That's pretty good. Good job. Good job. All right. Let's try it one more time. We're going to do it one more time, and then we're going to put it up on the screen, and we're going to read it together. Um, So three, two, one. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. All right. Good job. All right. So I'm going to put it up on the screen. We're going to Look at it closely. I want to say a few things about it before we move on to our text tonight. But look at verse uh, 25. This, this memory verse, I promise you, ties in a, a whole lot with what we're going to go through today. But the first verse, verse 25, says, Whom have I in heaven but you? What the psalmist is saying here is that there is no one in all of heaven and all of earth that even matters in comparison to God. He's all that matters. No one else compares to who God is. And I know that because of the underline, uh, the next line in verse 25, it says, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Ask yourself where you're sitting right now. Do you desire anything else? Is there anything else in your life that may get in the way or maybe distract you from your walk with the Lord, your desire for God? Is there other things on your mind that maybe takes a front seat? This psalmist is saying that there's literally nothing on earth that he desires before, besides God. He's all he wants. This, this psalmist wants God only. He desires God only. And then he acknowledges the fact that he's human. In verse 26, he says, my flesh and my heart may fail, meaning he may sin or he may very well die. He will die. He's acknowledging the fact that he's human. But then he goes, but God is the strength of my heart. He keeps my heart beating. He's the strength of my heart, and he is all I need. He's the portion forever. The psalmist only wants God. 
And we desire that to be true of each one of us individually. We desire that to be true of our church. We desire that to be true of everyone who claims the name of Christ. That's what it takes. We must desire him only. And so like I said earlier, we memorize God's word because we truly care about your spiritual growth. I care about all of our spiritual growth, myself, my family, my church family, We care about your spiritual growth, your understanding of God's word, your desire for God's word, and for others to come to know God. That's what we pray you desire as well. Your need for God's word and your love for God's word. We we have to desire that. That's what this psalms is saying. He only wants God. That's why I said earlier when I came up, I said that I'm glad to be here with you this morning. I'm glad to open God's word and to study it for all it's worth. I truly mean that, to study it for all that it's worth. I desire to study God's word for all that it's worth. And I assure you that no matter who comes up here behind this pulpit, whether it be Pastor Sam or anybody else that comes to preach, that's exactly what each one of us desires to do, to preach God's word for all it's worth. We aim to do that each week. All of us do. Not because we are priding ourselves in it, but because we see the value in God's word. That's how important it is. We don't wanna miss a word. We don't wanna miss a beat in God's word. But with that in mind, you can also uh, understand that we won't, avoid the hard text. Uh, I'm saying that because today is pretty, it's pretty heavy text. It's gonna, be, it's gonna be a little hard, so we're not gonna avoid that, though. You, you must know that we're not gonna avoid the hard text. We're going to teach the hard text just the same that we're gonna teach the easier text for us to digest. We, we wanna teach God's word faithfully. We don't want to uh, leave anything uncovered. We wanna illuminate the text in a way, each word, each verse, in a way that you can picture what's going on. We want you to see that. We want you to see the value of preaching God's word in its fullest. And that's why we here at the Field Church, we preach through God's word uh, books at a time. Because if we were to go and just pick segmented verses or, or topical sermons, we'd be able to skip all the hard stuff. We'd be able to say, hey, I don't wanna cover that. That's a little too heavy. But since we preach through books of the Bible, we don't get to avoid that. We don't get to do that. We have to preach through all the, all the hard texts that come through. And if you, uh, if you really remember or you've been with us for a while, you know that as we've covered the Gospel of Luke, we've been through the Gospel of Luke, we've covered a lot of hard texts. We've, we've, we've seen Pastor Sam preach a lot of hard sermons on hard texts. And that's the, that's the beauty of teaching through books of the Bible. Um, besides, I think you, you know if we would skip something, right? You'd know if we skipped chapter 11 or if we skipped a verse here or there, you would know that because you've been with us and you've seen that we teach through books of the Bible, you'd probably come up to us afterwards and say, hey, what happened to that paragraph back, what, back there? Why didn't we read that? Is there something you didn't want us to see? Um, so that's why we hold true to teaching God's word in its fullest, teaching it through books of the Bible. We want you to, to see the beauty of it. And, and by the end of the time that we get through Luke, just imagine how much you're gonna know about the gospel of Luke. You're gonna know from the beginning to the end. And it's gonna be so engraved in your mind and in your hearts you're gonna see the value of teaching through books of the Bible. And I just wanna show us a few things just as I, I made comments on, on God's word and how highly we hold it. Um, this book that you hold in your hands, that's in your hands or in your laps or, or next to you, that this is not just a simple book. It's not just a collection of books. It's God's word. It's a holy book. It's holy. It's not just a normal book that you can say, hey, I'm gonna put it on the shelf and I'm gonna leave it there for a while then I'll pick it up. This is a book that you should say, I need to go find and learn from God. I'm gonna need, I want God's wisdom. I want him to teach me through his word. That's what this is. So we take it seriously here and I just wanna show you a few different areas in God's word that really talks about his word or talks about what we learn from his word. 2 Timothy 3, 16 to 17, you're probably familiar with this passage, but it says all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The Bible that's in your hand or in your laps, it says it's all, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's what you hold in your hands. That's God's words. And he gave it to us for teaching, for reproof, for correction, training, and righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. He gave it to us so that we would know him. So all scripture is breathed out by God and it teaches us about eternal life that we see in his word. Look to John 17, three. These are Jesus's words. Or maybe it says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, that, whom you have sent. You only find that in God's word. You can't find it on a, on a, from a self-help book on a shelf. You literally find that's eternal life. You find that in God's word. You learn about that in God's word. Or how about Romans 15, 4? This is the Apostle Paul writing this. He says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction and that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. That's hope in God. We find that in his scriptures, in his word. It says in the scriptures, we might have hope. It teaches all about that, all about the life that we have in Christ. So that we read it, right? We hear it on Sundays or in Bible studies. And then we learn it, and from God's word, we believe it, and we live according to his word. Romans 10, 8 through 13, the apostle Paul says this. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if, we confess with, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Here it is. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We find that in his word in God's holy word, the book that you hold in your hand. So now do you see why we at the Field Church hold God's word so highly, why we wanna teach it, why we wanna memorize it together as a church. So this, this would be near us in our mouths and in our hearts as we just read in Romans uh, 10, that it would be with us everywhere we go, that you would have it memorized in your mind, that you would have it graven on your heart, that you would say, this is how I want to live. I wanna live according to God's word. I want this to mold my life. I want to desire him above all else. And in our text today, that's what Jesus shows us. He's going to show us the importance of truly living out his word, living according to his word, obeying his word, believing his word, and letting it transform your life rather than just acting it out. That happens more often than not. You live, that you read his word and then you just act it out. There are many that live that way, and we're going to see the danger of that today. Now, with all that in mind, with the importance of God's word, I would like to direct our attention to where we are today in the Gospel of Luke, okay? We have been studying it for some time, as you well know, probably over a year and a half, a while, right, Sam? Um, it's been a while. We've been studying God's word for, uh, in the Gospel of Luke for quite some time now. And uh, it's been a journey. It's been a, we've been looking at the history of the life of, life of Jesus, and it has been a joy-filled journey with the Son of Man. We have followed all the way from his birth to his ministry, where we have been for some time, and we will eventually get to his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Right now, in our storyline, in our text today, we're actually only a few months away. Right now, the, the religious leader becoming more and more hostile toward Jesus and his teaching, and today we're only a few months away, like I said, from the day that they will arrest, beat, spit on, curse, mock, and eventually murder Jesus by nailing him on the cross. Don't get excited. I know we're only a few months away in the storyline, but it's gonna take us a lot longer than a few months. So hang on, hang in there. But, um, but that's the beauty of it. We're gonna unpack everything. Uh, here in the storyline, however, we are only a few months away from when Jesus will be killed, where they're going to murder him and nail him on the cross. Uh, the reason I laid all that out is to help us see the teaching and the reason why Jesus is being rejected. He's teaching truth. He's teaching life. And the religious elite hate it because it's, he's calling them out. He's saying your moral life that you're living, the, the good life that you say you're living in front of the eyes of others is rubbish. It's pointless. It's leading you astray. It's blinding you. You're still dead in your sin. And they don't like that. They want to suppress the truth. They want to go another route. They want to avoid his teaching because Christ is teaching life through him only. And they want to do it their way. And last week, I believe... My brother in Christ, Mike Linstead, he preached the section previously, 11, 14 through 23, and we learned all about this. We learned about the two different kingdoms. 
We learned about the kingdom of darkness and we learned about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of darkness is led by and ruled by Satan and the kingdom of God is ruled by God himself, the one true God. There's no neutral ground as we learned. And we must know, I must tell you to be faithful to God's word that every single one of you in this room, myself included, and everybody on this planet, when we were born, we were born into the kingdom of darkness. We were children of wrath. There's no, no other route. You weren't born into the kingdom of God. None of us were. Romans 5, 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's not saying most sinned. Every single one of us sinned. We were born children of wrath. We were born in the kingdom of darkness. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says this. The apostle Paul once again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath, following the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, and that's where we were all born into. And if you are not in Christ, if you are truly not in Christ, I have to tell you lovingly that you're still a child of wrath. You're still in the kingdom of darkness. That's where you remain. That's what Mike was teaching last week, that there's only, there's only two kingdoms. John 3.36, Jesus says this, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Today, we will see that. We will see two different ways, two different paths. To be delivered from this darkness, there must be a savior, and that is Jesus Christ. That's what we teach here. We preach Christ and his word. Him, we preach Christ and him crucified. And the Bible which you hold, the one that we hold so highly here at the Field Church, testifies all about him from Genesis to Revelation. It prophesies all about him. It teaches all about him. The Old Testament says this Messiah to come, it's, it's at the plan of God to redeem his people back to himself. So this is clear throughout all of scripture, just as we learned last week. There's no in-between, no neutrality. There's no third kingdom. Neutrality in reality is remaining in the kingdom of darkness, remaining an enemy of God and therefore remaining children of wrath who are condemned to hell. That's real life. This is real so as we know, there are two kingdoms, and just as there are two kingdoms, there's the kingdom of darkness and there's the kingdom of life, there's the kingdom of God. There are two different ways that people try to leave the kingdom of darkness and go to the kingdom of God. There's only two, believe it or not. I know you may think there's a lot of other ways that I can think of that people try to go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of God. There's literally only two different ways, and I'm gonna show you that. Are you all familiar with the passage uh, the broad road and, and, or, the, or the broad path and narrow path. Y'all familiar with that passage? Matthew 7, 13 through 14, Jesus gives another parable. He says, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. You notice that there was only two kingdoms last week, and I just said that there's only two ways that people attempt to leave the kingdom of darkness and be under the kingdom of God. Jesus says the same thing right here in Matthew. There's a narrow gate, which is hard, leads to life. There's a broad gate, which is easy. Most take it, and it leads to death. That's what this verse is saying. He doesn't list the third middle ground path because there's no third kingdom, there's no third way, there's only two. One is to death and one is to life. The broad path, you are without God and it equals destruction. The narrow path, you are with God and it leads to life eternal with God. That's what we're gonna see today. We're gonna see that clearly. There's the first one that we're gonna see in our verses 24 to 26 is, is a form of moral reformation. Someone trying to take that broad path and make their way to God. Then we're going to have that second one in 27 to 28, which is that, that narrow path, the spiritual transformation, the only way God's work. Moral reformation is our work, right? So moral reformation is being a good person, upholding the law, trying to earn your way there. 
We will see that today. I, I tell you truly, most of the world, most religions, every, every other religion besides true Christianity, I say true Christianity purposely, every other religion in this world tries to morally reform their life. It's works-based, every other religion besides true Christianity, the ones that stand on God's word and hold it true. That's one way, the way that leads to destruction. And then there's spiritual transformation, which is God's work. He's the one that's doing it. We can't earn our way. Remember, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not by your own doing. It's a gift of God, not, by, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. It's God's work. He does it. That's what we're gonna see, the two different contrasts today. So if you would, please grab your Bibles. Um, and, and we do have time. If you don't have a Bible in your hand or in your laps, uh, we have plenty of Bibles on the back right or the back left. Feel free, go grab one, bring it with you. We want you to look at God's word. I'm not that interesting. You don't need to look at me that much. Look at, look at God's word. Um, go grab one, turn to Luke 11, look at verse 24 to 28, and we're gonna spend some time looking through it. Um, it's very important. We want you to look at God's word. Um, but before we do, I wanna pray, then we're gonna read our text and we're gonna get into it, okay? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that you have given us together. Lord, I pray, Lord, that we would look closely to your word, that we would hold it at its highest, Lord, that we would respect your word, that we would cling to every word that you have given us, Lord. And Father, I pray that you would, you would speak through me, Lord, that there would be nothing of my own saying, Lord, that it would be all from you. Um, Lord, and that you would use this time to grow each and every one of us in this room, to edify us, to strengthen us, to, to grow us in our wisdom and understanding of your word, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would mold us to be more and more like you, that we would flee from this moral reformed life that uh, says that we can be good enough. I pray, pray that we would flee from that, Lord. And Lord, that we would cling to you and that you would be all that we desire. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so... Pick up your Bibles. Let's look to Luke 11, verse 24 to 28, and I'm gonna begin reading, starting in verse 24. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Like I said earlier, this text today, our text, is a contrast between a false security of moral reformation and true security of spiritual transformation. That's where it truly comes from. We're gonna see that contrast today. Our first point today is moral reformation leads to death. That's what we see in verses 24 to 26. Moral reformation leads to death. And as we unpack this, you're gonna see just what I mean. Look back with me to verse 24. We see something very interesting there. Let's read it. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. The demon or the unclean spirit has gone out of this person. It has left and it passes through waterless places. So when I was reading and studying this, I had my first initial questions were, you know, what caused this unclean spirit to leave? And then the next question was, what are these waterless places that he's speaking of? What is this? That's what I'm asking myself. And those are two valid questions, probably questions that you had as we read this. I mean, what, what caused him to leave? What waterless places? What is he talking about here? I believe this is going to help us understand the passage. I want us to read a couple of, uh, one section here, which is really gonna help us understand what these waterless places are. I'm gonna lay that out first, and then we're gonna get into the whole reason why the demon left in the first place. Look to Luke 10, 17 through 18. Pastor Sam preached on this not too long ago. Luke 10, 17 to 18 says, the 72, well, this was the time when Jesus sends out the 72. He sends them out. He says, by my will, by my power, you're gonna go out and you're gonna heal. You're gonna uh, uh, heal the sick, heal the maim. You're gonna uh, cast out demons. You're gonna do all this in my name is what Jesus said. So he sends them out. They go, the 72 returned with joy 
saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan, Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Pastor Sam preached on this not too long ago and he explained what Jesus saw. It was the spiritual realm. Jesus saw the spiritual realm in which the demons and angels operate. Jesus saw a spiritual war going on and he saw Satan being defeated. He saw Satan falling like lightning. He was being beaten. That's what he was happening. Jesus saw this. So that water, the waterless places we're talking about, it's not a physical realm. It's not, this demon is not physically going through a, a desert or anything like that. What he is doing is he's going through the spiritual realm. He's looking for someone else to inhabit so he can destroy their life too. But he doesn't find any. And that's the danger, what we're gonna see today. So now the next question that I had was, what about the reason the demon left in the first place? Before I actually get to the answer that, I wanna cover a few things from last week. Last week's sermon, Mike preached on uh, 14 through, um, what is it, 21? Or 14 through 23. And uh, let's look to verses 14 and 15 and see how it works when Jesus casts out demons. Verse 14 to 15 says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke and the people marveled. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. So some marveled at what Jesus was doing and others accused Jesus of doing this by the power of Beelzebul, by the power of Satan. Hence, therefore, calling Jesus a servant of the devil. They were calling God, that's who Jesus is, God in flesh, God incarnate. They were calling him a servant of the most vile creature ever. Satan. And in verse 17 and 18, Jesus corrects this idiotic thinking. He basically says, how in the world or why in the world would Satan divide his kingdom? Why in the world would he cast out himself? He's just going to destroy himself if he does that. That doesn't make any sense. And so, as Mike said last week, the the Jewish, Jewish men there were like, oh yeah, that makes sense. I don't know. I don't know why. That doesn't make sense either. There's no way he would do that because he'd be destroying himself. A kingdom divided against itself will fall. But when he gets to verse 19, Jesus entertains their their thought process. He says, okay, fine. If I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out then? So Jesus is saying, if I'm suspect because I cast out demons and they leave, then your Jewish exorcists, the ones that claim they can cast out demons, they're in question as well. And we see in other areas of scripture that they don't have the power. Look at, I'm not gonna look at Acts 19, but I'm gonna reference it to you. If you wanna go look at it later, you can. Acts 19, verse 13 to 15 is a, a, a picture of these Jewish exorcists that try and go cast out this demon. The demon basically laughs at them and then he attacks them and they leave running away, scared for their life, naked. They didn't have the power over this demon. The demon showed them that because only God can, has the power over these demons. So the reason I'm saying all this is because it's very important for us to ask that question. Verse 24, we're not told why the demon left, right? Look at it. When the unclean spirit has gone out, we're not told how he left or why he left. So that's why I had that question. Is like, what caused this demon to leave? We just, we just saw some passages of, of Jesus casting out the demon and the demon leaves immediately, right? The reason why I know Jesus didn't do this is because not only does it not tell us that Jesus did it, but it also says that this demon returned and he returned with seven more that were evil, more evil than himself. So there's no way Jesus did this. Because what happens when Jesus casts out demons? Do y'all remember? They're dead, gone. He's not coming back. There's no more. That demon is gone. Jesus has finished it. Because when Jesus cast out demons, he cast out demons by the finger of God because he's God. So this demon, demon didn't leave because Jesus cast him out. This could only be a picture of maybe a phony exorcism uh, by those Jewish exorcists that seemed to have worked for a time, but it really didn't. But I think there's a little bit more to that. In verse 25, we see, look at verse 25. It says that this man swept up and put it in order, his house. It's all swept up and put in order. This demon is left temporarily because of a respite or a disgust by the way this man's trying to morally change his life, by reforming his life to make it look good and holy. And so he's, he's changing his life. This demon leaves temporarily. He doesn't want to have anything to do with this man trying to fix up his life right now. He said, I'm going to go find someone else and I'm going to ruin their life. I'm going to make them immoral. I'm going to, I'm going to ruin their life. But he doesn't find that. 
right? So you see this person was once living. When that demon indwelled him, when that demon was with him, he was living a completely immoral life. He was living all for himself, doing everything for himself. He was probably sleeping around. They st- he was probably doing drugs and all that. But when the demon left, it says he swept it up, put it in order. So he stopped sleeping around. He stopped doing drugs. He stopped getting drunk every day. They stopped thieving. They stopped killing or looking at pornography. They began to attend the synagogue or church services and tithe regularly. They looked like a new person. They had a smile on their face always. They were well kept. They appeared to be holy by those around him. That's what he was changing into. He was looking holy, looking good, looking like he was a righteous person. He was going to the synagogue regularly. But really, he was in more danger than ever before, as we saw in verse 26. It's a worse state. He's worse than when he was immoral. I want to show us a few accounts just of, of how Jesus cast out these demons so we can 100% be sure that this demon did not leave because of Jesus. It was by other means, by this moral reformation or by this false uh, Jewish exorcist. See, when Jesus cast out demons, we're about to see a few accounts, and, and this is how I know this. Look at, it's, most of them are in Luke, by the way. Luke 4, 33 through 36, it says, and in the synagogue, there was a man who had the, uh, had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirit and they come out. You see, this demon first approached Jesus with some pride and arrogance. He laughs and says, I know who you are, holy one of God. And Jesus says, be quiet, be silent. Don't say another word. He says, get out of here. And the people noticed this. They saw it. They said, what is this word? How how does he have this authority and power? He says, for with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirit and they come out. Jesus is in charge there. He has the power. These Jewish exorcists, the false ones, they don't. Look later, a little bit further down in Luke. It shows the passage where, where Jesus is just healing people as they come. He's healing them. And it says that he's casting out demons as well. And what do they say? They came crying, you are the son of God. But Jesus rebuked them too and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. Jesus tells them the same thing. Be quiet, get out, you're done, no more. Luke 8, 27 to 29a. I might have a few more verses on there, but I'm only gonna go to 29. It says, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Pastor Sam preached on that passage too and this this person was a man who was possessed by thousands of demons. Legion is the name of this demon. And he refers to Jesus as son of the most high God. He acknowledges who Jesus is. He knows who he is. He fears him. And Jesus has no problem with casting this demon out as well. Luke 9, 38 through 42, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you, look at my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged you, begged your disciples to cast him out, but they could not. Jesus answered, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Do you see the power that Jesus shows when he casts out demons? He's not playing around. These demons obey him immediately. They stand no chance. They fear him and they obey him without question. And if we were to look at all these accounts, all the other accounts in in God's word, we would see the same thing. This is how it goes. Jesus comes and approaches someone who is possessed by a demon. The demon sees Jesus and completely acknowledges him for who he is by saying something like this. I know who you are, 
the Holy One of God, or what have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me, or you are the Son of God. They are subject to him. They fear him. Jesus has power over them because he is God and they cannot be God. They obey him without question and they fear him. That's how Jesus cast out demons. They don't come back. They're done. They're finished. So looking at our account here today, verse 24, look at it again. This unclean spirit has gone out. When we get to the end of it, that's this unclean spirit, this demon has come back with seven more. If Jesus would have cast them out, this demon would, have, he would never be coming back. He's done. So that's how I know Jesus did not do this. Jesus is giving an example. He's giving an example of these false exorcists or these people who try to cast these demons out on their own will, by their own power, trying to change their life, morally reform their life, be good in the standings of the world. But it's so dangerous. The danger is, is doing things on your own, doing things by your own merit, by your own act, to moralize your life, to make yourself look good, to appear right and holy. It's so dangerous. His estate was worse than it was before. I'm gonna say something real quick that might, might shock you a little bit. You may have never heard it, um, but I'm gonna say it anyways. Moralizing your life, morally reforming your life, or being moral is far more dangerous and far more deadly than being immoral without Christ. Moralizing your life, morally reforming your life, living a moral life is far more dangerous and deadly than living an immoral life without Christ. Believe it or not, why? That's exactly what we're seeing in this text, by the way. This is someone who has morally reformed their life. They're changing their life. They're trying to act good. They're trying to look good. And it says the last state of this person was worse than first. Because when you morally reform your life, when you change your life and try and look good and try and put all these barriers in front of yourself, you're just blinding yourself to the truth that you're still dead in your sins. What did, they, what did Jesus say? He said in, in Luke 5, 32, that he came to not call the, right, the righteous, but he came to call sinners to repentance because those who are righteous, who looked and say, hey, I'm upholding the law. I'm this righteous Pharisee or this lawyer. I'm doing good. Look at me. I'm in the front seats of the synagogue. Look how I'm living my life. I'm good. They're completely blind. They don't think they need to be saved. They think they're good. But the one who is immoral, they know they're a sinner. They know that they're wrong and they know that there is something that needs to be done for their sin. They know they need to be saved. That's the difference. That's why I said that morally reforming your life is far more dangerous and deadly than it is to live in a moral life without Christ. Let's read verse 25 one more time. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. From this verse, we know that the house is referencing the person which the demon left, right? This person's life was a wreck before the demon left. That's why he had to put it in order. He was living a moral life. But after the demon left, they began to clean up their act, to put things into order, making themselves look nice and presentable. This is a picture of an immoral person becoming moral. They tried to uh, live a certain way in front of others. They wanted to be accepted by others. They wanted to look holy and righteous. They were maybe even a religious person or they became one. They went to the temple regularly. They played the game on the outside and made their house appear pristine or made their life appear pristine. It looked good. They appeared to be holy according to people, but their house was completely empty. And that demon that left still had the key to his house. He was coming back with seven more because morally reforming your life does nothing. I wanna show you what Jesus says later on in this chapter. This parable and then is, is a slight picture of literally how the Pharisees and lawyers uh, live their life. Look with me to Luke 11. Only a few verses over 37, verse 37. I'm gonna read that real quick and, and kind of briefly talk about it. But starting in verse 37, it says, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at the table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness, you fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues 
and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing. Once the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying this thing, uh, these things, you insult us also. So the lawyers came up and basically said, Lord, by, by you saying this, you're insulting us too. And he's like, yeah, I'm not leaving you out. You're guilty too. Listen, this is what he says. And he says, and he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear and you yourself do not touch the burdens with one, one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore, also, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers. For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. I know that's long, but that's a picture of what we're seeing described here in this parable. These Pharisees, these lawyers, they lived this life that seemed to be holy in the eyes of those around them. They wanted the front seats in the synagogue. They even blinded others around them. They didn't tell them the truth. They, they were teaching them, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to do this, you have to do that, you have to uphold the law perfectly, you have to appear holy, you have to do all of these things that we're telling you to do. And they're only blinding them. They're blinding other people. They're leading them astray. So do you see what Jesus is saying in that passage? These Pharisees and lawyers were living out this deadly moral life. He said their graves were whitewashed. They were whitewashed graves. They didn't have anything on it. No one noticed it. And I believe we also have a great example of someone being delivered from this blinding life, this morally reformed life. In Philippians 3, verses 4 to 6, the Apostle Paul says this. He used to be a Pharisee. He used to be one that was held highly in this role. He was climbing up the chains. He said this, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You see, this is the life that, that Paul was living, the, the life of the Pharisee that was tailored around the law. They made things their own way. They tried to earn their own way. But Paul came to realize one day that this morally reformed life that he had been living so hard to keep was only blinding him. He was still dead in his sin. He realized that he was a wretched sinner in need of saving. And that's why he said this in Philippians 3, 7 through 9, the following verses. He said, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul was changed. Moral, moral reformation did nothing except blind him from the truth. He was a wretched sinner in need of saving and he praised God for being delivered from this. He used to pride himself in living this holy life that was according to man. All the people that he was with, they would have said, man, Paul is such a great guy. He's a holy man. He's upholding the law. Look how great Paul is. And you know what Paul said about that? It's, it's nothing. It's garbage. I can throw that in the dumpsters, what he's saying. I don't need any of that. That did nothing for me. What did is Christ. That's what he's saying here. And then he also, this law that, that they were so highly holding, which is, is holy. God's law is completely holy, by the way. That's also in Romans. But Romans 3, 19 through 23, Paul it lays out exactly what this law was intended for. The thing that, the very thing that uh, the Pharisees and lawyers said, hey, I'm, I'm righteous, I'm holy, I'm living according to God's law, can't you see this? The thing that they said made them righteous actually shows them that they're sinners in need of saving. Look at Romans 3, 19 through 23. It says, now we know that whatever the law says, it, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is what they didn't see. The Pharisees and lawyers did not see this. They thought that, hey, I'm a righteous man. I'm living according to the law. According to the Pharisees and lawyers, I'm upholding everything that I'm supposed to be doing, therefore I'm good. They didn't see the sin in their life and the death that was coming with it. They didn't see that. I know I'm saying this and it's, 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 it's kind of heavy at sometimes, and, and you may even be thinking, well, I know that. This isn't new news. We don't have Pharisees in our church. I, I know I sin. I know I need a savior too, but I'm gonna tell you our churches today are full of that. They're full of modern day Pharisees. They believe that they're righteous because they go to church. There are people who are caught up by trying to earn their way to God, cleaning up their act, trying to appear holy, checking off all the boxes which say, I'm good, I go to church, I give to the needy, I don't curse, I've been baptized, I don't have sex outside of marriage, I'm serving God, I'm a good moral person. I deserve heaven is what they're saying. No, you don't, none of us do. None of us deserve heaven. And that's what we're seeing here in this text. These people believe that they deserve it. Well, we don't, not one of us. Actually, if, we're, if it were fair, if God were to be fair, every single one of us deserve to be judged under God's wrath. We deserve hell. That's what we deserve because we are born children of wrath, right? As we saw in Ephesians 2. But our culture, I'm saying it like this, brothers and sisters, because what we see in this passage, Jesus is giving a warning. He's giving a warning. And so I must teach it like that. I must preach it to you as a warning. That's what Jesus is giving. There's hope. Don't worry, 27, 28 is the hope that we have. But this is a warning, so I must warn you just the way that Jesus did. Our culture, our church culture fits right in line with this text. It's so scary to believe that, but our church culture really does. Our church culture says that you know, spending time with God is secondary. Going to church and gathering together as believers is secondary. Our culture says sports, hangouts, dinner, outings, movies, school, and even sleeping in because I feel like it is more important than our time spent with God and congregating with other brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what our church culture says. Or there's another side. I say, hey, I go to church every single Sunday. I gather every single Sunday, but every other day in my life, I, I spend doing things for myself. I desire other things. I can give God an hour, an hour and a half of my life, and that's it. I'm not gonna give any more. But then there's one that I believe fits into this passage. There's this one that I see most. And there are those that, that go to everything. They look churchy in everyone's eyes. They wanna do everything and everything that they can to be seen as holy. They wanna go to church and, and participate in all that because they think doing that earns their way. That is good. We should be involved with the church. We should congregate together as believers every single day and all the chances that we get. But none of those things earn your way to God. Uh, there's a famous pastor um, his name is Vody Bauckham, well-respected in our church. He's a great pastor. And he says something uh, like this. I might be paraphrasing. I'm not gonna say word for word, but he says, he says, hell is going to be full of people who never smoked, drank, had sex out of marriage, did this and that, been baptized, because none of those things save you. That's what he said in one of his sermons. And it's true. None of those things save us. None of it does. And so that's what he was saying. Look at verse 25 once again because all those things I just listed is what verse 25 is attempting. He says, and when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. This is someone that is cleaning up their house, putting it order, in order, but there's real, really no change. There's just covered up. He probably swept up the dirt in their house and threw that away. He mopped the floors. He cleaned the dirty dishes, maybe even used a magic eraser as you, you probably have used before. I've used it before. They work well. But he probably used a magic eraser to, to whiten the, the floorboards or the baseboards and to clean it all up to make it look new. Maybe he painted his house or changed the color of the front door, but it's still the same house. He hasn't changed anything. He just beautied it up, made it look nice and pristine. That's all he did. He believed that he could earn his way to God, but that's not true. It's not gonna work. In the end of verse 24, we see that that demon said, hey, I'm gonna return home. That demon still had the key to his house. He's coming back with seven more. I want us to look at Matthew's account on verse 24 and 25, where we're gonna to move to our second point soon. 
but I want us to look at Matthew's account. It's very similar. I'm gonna read it from the NASB translation. It's, I'm gonna have it on the screen. But I believe this is gonna kind of open our eyes or at least give us a picture of really what was happening to this man in his life. The NSB, uh, New American Standard, by the way, says, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept and put in order. Says this man is unoccupied, he's empty. There isn't a new owner. He hasn't been saved. The demon is still in charge of this guy and he's coming back. That's why he came back with seven more demons, more evil than himself. This is a description of somebody who attempts moral reform without ever being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Reform apart from regeneration is never effective and it eventually reverts back to pre-reform behavior. Friends, this is serious. This is so serious that your soul depends on it. Everyone does. If you're trying to morally reform your life, beware, because that's what Jesus is warning us about. We need to heed his word. This leading into us, uh, how heavy this was, I know it is, and it should be, we've seen that moral reformation leads to death. That's all it does. It's gonna blind you from the truth. It's going to try and cause you to earn your way to God or earn your way. There's... David Grantham and I were just talking a while ago and he said that he has heard this thousands of times just from open air preaching on campuses that most people believe that if you are just a good person, you're going to be right with God, that you're gonna earn your way to heaven. That's what most people believe. I'm a good person. You know, I, I don't do all the, the list of things that everyone says is wrong. The world says that all of this is wrong and immoral. I don't do that. I'm a good person according to the world. So doesn't that earn me a right seat in, in God's kingdom? No, it doesn't, absolutely not. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Changing your life, sweeping up your house, putting it in order, it does nothing but blind you. And you're only gonna be in the next state when, you, when it comes back, when your life changes back, it's gonna be worse than it was at first. It's like that one person that the, I got the t-shirt, right? It's someone that says, hey, I, I wanna change from this immoral life. I don't like doing all the things that I was doing. People don't respect that. They think I'm, I'm disgusting. And so I'm gonna change from that and I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be all about God. I'm gonna put this t-shirt on. I'm gonna go to every little church event. I'm gonna praise God in the front of everyone, everyone's eyes and I'm gonna do this and that and, and, and that's what I wanna do. But when things don't go their way, when things don't happen the way they want it to, they're just gonna revert back to their old life and they're gonna be immoral more than they were before. They're gonna be more blind than they were before. And that's going to kill them. It is killing them. And so with all that heavy stuff that we just talked about that we have to hear, we need to hear that. We need to know that and believe that and not, not put this to the side and say, hey, that's not me. You need to think that through. Are you morally reforming your life? Jesus gives us hope in verse 27 to 28. Look with me to verses 27 and 28. Our second point is spiritual transformation leads to life. Verse 27 and 28, spiritual transformation leads to life. Verse 27 says, as he, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the, woman, uh, the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. She said, Jesus' mother is blessed. This was a very common Middle Eastern compliment. Now, Jesus, this, this woman is complimenting Jesus. She's giving him the best compliment that she could give him. She's acknowledging who he is, acknowledging that he is the Christ. But that, that's all she's, she's doing right there. She's acknowledging who he is. She's saying, your mother must be proud of you. This is common in the, in the Middle Eastern area, especially during this time. But I don't think that Jesus is necessarily disagreeing with the, this woman. I think he's just kind of correcting it a bit refocusing her attention that, yes, Mary is blessed, but let's see exactly why she's blessed. That's what he's saying. See exactly why she's blessed. That's why Jesus said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He's not necessarily saying you're wrong, but he's saying, let's look at the reason she's blessed. Because those who are blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Matthew 15, eight through nine says this, this people, this is the form of those that are not hearing the word of God and keeping it. This people honors me with your lips, 
with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This people honors them with their lips, but their heart is far from them. That is our church culture, friends. That really is. Acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God is not what makes you one with Christ. You can acknowledge him all day long. That's not, that's not what saves you, believe it or not. You can, ask, you can ask many people that. That's what they'll say. Jesus is the Son of God. Yes, he is. The demon said that too. We saw many accounts just now where the demon said those exact words. You are the Son of God. What are you gonna do with me, Son of the Most High God? Remember those? They acknowledge exactly who he was. They feared him. They knew exactly who he was. But I want to tell you that, that that is not what saves you. Acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God is not what saves you. He is, absolutely, yes, he is. And you need to know that. You need to believe that. But simply saying it is not what saves you. Luke 1, 34 through 38, we're gonna see why Mary was truly blessed. Why this, this Jesus simply corrected it. Luke 1, 34 to 38 says, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be born, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, called barren, uh, that she was, uh, sorry, with her, who was called barren. She Usually, used to not be able to have kids, but she did. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to your word. She's blessed because she is the servant of the Lord and she's living according to his word. Luke 1, 46 to 47 says, and Mary said, my soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior. See, the reason why Mary is truly blessed, she is, I'm not disagreeing, she is. The reason why she's truly blessed is because God saved her very soul. He is her savior and she is his blessed servant. That's why she's saved. That's why she's blessed. Let's look at some others real quick as we're running out of time. But Luke 8, 20 through 21 says, and it was reported to him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing, uh, wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and hear it. James said to be doers of the word, not just hearers, or don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. John 6, therefore they said to him, what are we to do so that we may accomplish the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Believing in the son of God, that's the work of God. Look at verse 28 one more time. He said, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. That's what truly changes someone. That is what spiritual transformation looks like. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. Remember verses 24 to 26, it was about the house, right? This man was cleaning up his house, but it wasn't a new house, it was the same house. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, 17 again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, that was the question last week, are you with Christ? Are you in Christ? If anyone is in Christ, this person is new. That house would not be the same house. It would be a completely new house. It wouldn't just be painted on the outside or swept up on the inside. It's completely new, a brand new house. That old house is gone. The new house has come because God has given you that. He's the one that's living inside you right now. He's the one that has saved your very soul. This verse in 28 clearly says that. We have several more that I want to touch on. Look at Luke 9, 23. We're not going to read them all. I just want to talk about them real quick. This is one that, it, this is what it looks like to truly follow God, to truly follow Jesus Christ, to truly be transformed, spiritually transformed. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone wants me, follow me. That's basically what he's saying. He said, what it takes to follow me is literally denying yourself, your life, all that you want, your desires of this earth. Deny all of those things and follow me, taking up your cross daily, which is a torture chamber. He said, live with me, follow me. This is what it takes 
You're denying everything. You're following Christ. You're living for Christ. There's nothing else. That's why our memory verse, I said, was so pertinent to what we were studying today. And there is none else on this earth that I desire besides you. Nothing else. Remember that? He desires him only, God only. That's what we're seeing. And I want to give us one last picture as we close. It's also in Luke. We're not there yet. I'm going to give us a little sneak peek of what we'll eventually get to in a while, but we'll get to it. Luke 17. Luke 17, 11 through 19. You can turn there, but it will be up on the screen. This is a picture of what it, what it looks like of somebody truly repenting, truly believing by faith in Christ and the effect that it has on their life. This is what Jesus is painting in verse 28. Luke 17, 11 through 19 says, while he was on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, 10 men with leprosy who stood at a distance met him. And they raised their voices saying, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, one of them, when he saw that he had been healed, turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice. And he fell on his face at his feet, at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. I'll tell you why that's important in a second. But Jesus responded and said, were there not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Now look at verse 19 one more time, and I'm gonna explain to you why the foreigner and the Samaritan is important as well. But verse 19, he says, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. In the original language, in the Greek, this literally translates, your faith has saved you. Sozo, that's the Greek word. Your faith has saved you. It's the same word used in Ephesians 2.8, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, right? We know that. That's the same word that's used there. It says your faith has saved you. Not that your faith has saved you or healed you from the leprosy that you have, but your faith that I have given you has saved your very soul. This is eternal salvation he's talking about to this man. And the reason why I said it's important that we're gonna see the Samaritan and the foreigner is because when Jesus said that only the Samaritan, why is it only that this foreigner has come back to me and praised me and praised the name of God? Why is it only him? Because in him saying that, this foreigner, the Samaritan, meaning he's a Gentile, he's an outsider, he's someone who everyone else looked at as immoral, as a sinner, although he was, the other men, the nine, they were Jews. They were the ones that held themselves as self-righteous. They were the ones who were morally reformed. And once their leprosy was cleansed, they said, hey, I'm good. I'm gonna go back now and, and worship in the synagogues. I'm gonna do all this and that. I'm good. The leprosy's gone no more. I'm cleansed on the outside. I'm fine. That's why they left and they didn't come back because they didn't think they needed saving. This man, the Samaritan, this foreigner, he knew for sure that he was an immoral man, that he needed saving. And he came back and he praised God for the work that he had done in his life. God has saved his very soul. So that's the big point of that. And that is the picture Jesus is pointing out in verse 28. He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So as we close, I wanna just say that our first point, as we saw in verses 26 to, uh, tw I mean, for, sorry, 24 to 26, is moral reformation leads to death. It will only blind you, it will only kill you, and it will damn you to hell for the rest of eternity. That's all that does. It blinds you. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot earn your way to God. And our second point was the one that we have hope in. It's spiritual transformation leads to life. It's beautiful. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. They live according to God. They deny their self. Their old immoral life is gone. They, they know that they can't earn their way to heaven. They're living for me. And so brothers and sisters, I encourage you, I urge you, flee from moral reformation. It will only lead to death. Cling to Christ and his word and he will spiritually transform you. He will give you a new heart. He will give you life, eternal. Desire him only as we saw in our memory verse today. That's all we can do. That's all we need. We need him. And cherish God's word truly. Read this daily. Bring this to your work if you're allowed to. Study God's word every single day. Abide in his word. Live for him. Deny yourself and live for Christ. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for this time, Lord. Thank you for your word, Father. Um, Lord, I just I praise you, Lord, for how beautiful it is, how majestic it is, how packed it is with so much to talk about. We could have spent so much more time on this passage. And, and Father, I know that, that this is something that's not gonna fall on deaf ears. Your word will not return void. And Father, I pray that this would be something that becomes true of each and every one in this, this room, each and every one in our church uh, family, Lord, that you would make this true in all their lives and their families' lives, that young children would be saved and would be spared from this moral reformation that's in our culture, Lord, that you would protect them from that, that you would save them, Lord, that you would bring them into your family and that you would save their very soul. Father, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.